The subject for the evening talk is listening without residue. It is probably quite apparent to us that in the course of our everyday life, you and I are frequently in contact with other human beings and there is much exchange which takes place. And we see too that in this contact with other human beings we might say that some of them are very close to us, we have a close contact, relationship, close proximity. There are others who we meet informally and uh, casually, passers-by, we might say. And then there are others that we have some association with, sometimes through work or studies or some form of access to, because they either support our activities or that person or that group is in opposition to our position and we're endeavouring to implement change. And in this we also notice too that not only the type of person that you and I meet with affects and influences our way of relating, but also the way of influence can be according to how we view that person generally. In other words, very easily at times when we are carrying images of somebody, we elevate him or her or them in a particular position, we, that affects our responses, our feelings, our way of being with the person. Or if we have a patronizing or an arrogant or, a under, or putting down the person or dismissing of the person, often without realizing it, that in turn affects. And so one of the things which we notice with modes of communication and our listening and being in the world is the way that the past, the, the memories and the images, <coughs> the expectations enter into the present and quite immediately have some influence on the way we relate. And sometimes this pattern of, this, of the impact, the residue of the past is the shadow intruding into the present, into the communication, affects the whole relationship and thus leaves another kind of residue afterwards. And we notice that one of the things with the residue from the past and the expectation that may well accompany it, either on ourselves or the other, is that there is some trace of what I want, what, what I expect, the goal I want out of this communication. And the more investment we have in this influence of the past and in the goal that we have in that communication, the more probability there is of pressure 
and demand in the situation. So when you and I come into a conversation, of course we may expect some fruit from it and some benefit, some clarification or whatever. But when there is some charge within the context of the communication, it enters into the present and it places pressure in that listening, in that communication. And one of the things we notice that when you and I are in that, in some pressure, there's a re this residue is there, we're experiencing pressure, that human beings are quite s sensitive and, uh, and receptive and quite easily and frequently even a person who we would not consider very aware or very caring or very conscious or whatever can also easily pick up pressure. And one of the, the signals to us in listening and in the communication which takes place of pressure going on and there's room and place for pressure but when there's pressure going on and it's leading to aggression and violence is that the mode of the communication has a strong intimation of it of attack and defend. And so sometimes when we are experiencing pressure one of the ways that we may interpret that is that we're under attack. So part of our learning and our self-knowledge and our experience of ourselves is how do I experience being under pressure from another, under attack? What's the typical kind of way that I deal with a situation? Is the mode of dealing with it withdrawal? I can't handle this, I need to, and it may be appropriate, need to step out of it, I need to avoid such confrontational activity. Is, is that the mode? Does that mode come in too frequently and too often in my communications? Is the mode that when under attack one finds oneself responding in like? Just as he or she or they are doing to me, therefore my only defence in this syndrome is to return like with like. And it seems to me that there's a possibility in ordinary, everyday communication of listening to bring about insights and discoveries which reflect the whole planet. The conflict between two human beings, the attack and the defend, the withdrawal and the aggression, and all that you and I can participate in, in a way is the raw material for telling us about every global issue and conflict that we know about. One of the other areas, and many, many aspects, of, of this. Uh, <coughs> One of the other areas is when <coughs> someone, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> meets someone who is um, regarded as being famous. 
And I would say, in I may say, it's not a criticism, it's a um, perception, that there is in the, um, America a tendency, a cultural tendency, and I'll give you an opposite as a parallel in a moment or two, a cultural tendency, and <coughs> somewhat the same um, um, in England too, to create for periods of time what we might call cultural heroes. And these heroes are put into the limelight for a period of time made an enormous fuss about. And then there's a necessity to uh, desecrate the new icon and find fault with, dismiss, and then the society goes on to make a new one. And this happens quite easily and quite, quite frequently, and it's a tragedy that this uh, goes on so frequently. But one of the things which we may notice in ourselves is when meeting somebody who is so-called famous, in whatever field that person is involved in, how easily this image immediately triggers all sorts of things inside of ourselves. Apprehension, fear, nervousness, tension, excitement, all this is going on. And in this movement inside of us, this residue of archetypes inside, bursting into the present, influences and affects the way we communicate. And one ends up not actually seeing clearly, but actually trapped in awe, in admiration, in projection, in forms of interpretation. If you take a contrast to this, you take Sweden. I go to Sweden quite uh, uh, regularly and um, many respects, many of its attitudes and outlooks I feel uh, expresses uh, civilized, civilized society. And in Sweden, the king of, Thailand, of Sweden and the, and the royal family can openly be seen walking out on the streets. And there's been this ease in this country, in Sweden, towards this, you do your thing and we do ours and it's okay, and there's not this cultural tendency, this cultural phenomena to create the cowboy heroes who are to be put up and put down. But sometimes it has its adverse effect. And one of the great champions of the third world, Olaf Parma, who was prime minister, who had protested vigorously against the uh, US government's invasion of Vietnam, and who ha had ensured that of all the Western countries, Sweden gave most of biggest percentage of its money, one and a half, two percent, whatever, to the third world. And Palmer, just a year or two ago, was brutally and tragically assassinated while coming out of a cinema one evening with his wife. And 
I was just in Sweden just a short period after this took place and had opportunity just to go to the spot and every day people come and it's become a place of quiet vigil just as a remembrance of Palmer and his work and his commitments. And so sometimes, as I say, we, we get caught up in this projection. And it remind, well, that reminds me, I think his son just got a, one of these funny things called Oscars. And Kirk Douglas was traveling in a car somewhere in um, California. And he picked up a hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker got in the car and sat next to uh, Kirk Douglas and then turned to him and looked at him again. And he said to him, Do you know who you are? <laughs> and it's this kind of uh, projection that, that takes place which completely interferes with two human beings whoever these human beings are, communicating and relating freely and openly because of this, in a way, invasion of projection. And it happens too, it happens when you're going to see your doctor, your dentist, your, your lawyer, even worse, when you're going to see a meditation teacher or whatever. And that can take place, and sometimes when people are just upstairs in, the, in that um, corridor. I think often the best experiences take place in the corridor waiting outside, in which one perhaps is waiting to come in and uh, there's going to be a meeting and all sorts of associations and, and, and going in to see the headmaster, the headmistress, or the, even worse, the priest. <laughs> and, and this is going on within, inside of oneself and one wonders what's all this movement and turbulence, how easily it enters into the consciousness. And perhaps the looking and being in touch with that and seeing that and letting that go is far more important than any exchange that may, uh, may take place uh, a few minutes later. In the area of listening and in our communication, it seems to me there are a few aspects which are, how should we say, worth, worth taking note of, worth anyway bearing in mind to find ways and means that you and I in our listening, in our talking, really, as it were, included in a fruitful and meaningful way into, into the whole field of meditation, the whole field of practice and awareness. And that kind of total listening, which is not total meaning tons of energy, but total me meaning the listening which hears outwardly and connects his inwardly as well, and listens for residue. Sometimes, in, in, there's, we sometimes don't have the energy, we don't have the, the vitality in that uh, time. And if I, I just, if I may, just rec uh, 
saying that just recalling one or two uh, experiences, one of them which occurred here some, some years ago. And one of the people had, one of the people sitting on the retreat had come for what I call an interview. I mean, two people looking at something together. And they're all are interviews. And this person had come, and the person um, uh, told me, the woman in this case, she said to me that she'd had a, a dream that night. And she said to me, Christopher, I, r I really must tell you about this dream. And at the time I was feeling a bit um, uh, uh, tired and um, so forth, and there's this rather lovely um, big armchair up there. So I was sitting in this armchair. And, and I said, look, you know, I, generally I don't know too much about um, dreams. I'm not a Jungian therapist. I haven't had any training in, in uh, knowledge of, the, of these things. She said, oh, I must tell you about this dream. It's, it's a really important dream. So she began to relate. You know, and, and it's like when somebody is telling you about some movie they've been to see, you know, they go on, on. <laughs> so this person is there, and I'm sitting there in this chair and, you know, ba basically listening to a home video. And while, while this is going on, I could just feel my eyelids you know, just, just dropping. You know, and then I, like this. And I just kind of faded out and... Um, fell asleep. <laughs> and then she said, Christopher, you know, am I boring you? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in these situations where we're in the position and where we're, uh, where we're listening in the, in, and with the attention and the energy and the interest which goes, sometimes it begins to fade away, we drop out. But sometimes what occurs when the energy gets a bit low and the interest and the vitality begins to fade because many people in this room are constantly day in day out in communication with somebody else or others and what very easily happens is that when the energy the vitality drops away as it does it ebbs and flows in the day we fall back on the residue not necessarily. Sometimes one could be tired, energy is low, and we can fall back on understanding. And the understanding, as it were, looks after the situation to some degree, like sometimes when we're driving <coughs> a car and mind wanders, but the understanding, hopefully, keeps us on the right side of the road. Or in your case, the wrong side. <laughs> and so, some, sorry about that. So, <laughs> So sometimes we come and we fall back just on the residue. And what happens when we fall back on this residue, which is there and present for us? We begin to act out of the residue. And thoughts come, feelings come, ideas come. They may or may not be expressed, but a characteristic feature when we fallen back on it is that we believe them. We actually believe that the interpretation that's going on is the truth of the present. 
and not the experience of the past. And, and, and sometimes we're faced, in a way, with bare choices in our living, in our being with, with each other, and of being in the present and all that's implied in that, and being in the past when the past is out of touch with the present. So then we might ask ourselves with, with, with this, the kind of interpretation which, uh, which takes place. And the extraordinary thing is that sometimes, as people report, when we are listening to this other person speaking or whatever, very easily, if there is projection, if there is elevation taking place in whatever way it forms, one of the features of elevating somebody is that we can easily and frequently undermine our own value, our own perception. And one of my concerns about our planet is, and about people, our situation, our planet, it's, it's all too often and all too easy and as you well know, I shan't mention the example, the good communicator seems to have a lot of influence. <laughs> and what happens very easily that the good communicator means that the ones who are being communicated to sometimes with almost unquestioning obedience and conformity, listen and accept because it's presented nicely, simply, easily, beautifully. <laughs> or it's presented passionately and authoritatively and this and that. And it seems to me that one of our responsibilities in life, and I think it's a growing responsibility for caring and concerned people that we need to explore ways and means in our life that we can communicate. And that it's not easy to come out of the self-conscious patterns which very easily trap us and hold us and when that does, what we start saying to ourselves is I've got nothing worth to say. I've got nothing important to say. People can express things much better than I. And, and, and this maintains, sadly, the status quo. And when the status quo is maintained, we have the planet like we have it. It's tragic. So it's as though in our communication, with all the fear and contractions and difficulties that can occur, it's as though we're, we're needing to ask of ourselves to find ways and means to, to come out of ourselves. And if I may say, the, the capacity to speak from experience and, and uh, share and communicate, is much more present here in the States than anywhere else that I go to. 
being one who you know, is on the road and going to different places, uh, here and there, there, there is that. Much more, but still there are many, many of you know how easy it is to contract and reduce your capacity to say what you see, say what you feel, say what you think. And it's not an easy undertaking and we make it hard for ourselves if we're projecting onto another. Leaving it to the rest. Sometimes in our many, 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 many uh, aspects to, to all of this, of course, <coughs> sometimes in our listening and in our hearing what another has to say. And that person, he, she, they, are speaking to us. And in this communication which is taking place to us, sometimes when the residues of things get in the way, what very easily happens is we, we begin, as it were, to take it all too personally. And with, with the tradition, with the Buddhist tradition, for all its um, countless limitations, too numerous to mention, it, it does encourage us and remind us about themes of mindfulness and detachment. Detachment means not clinging to self so much, not that distant uh, alienation form. Um, reminds us about the value of equanimity and letting go and just being with what is. And those are valuable themes of, uh, and reminders born out of uh, the tradition and out of our experience. But sometimes we notice we are listening and either directly or indirectly, what's taking place is that it's impacting on us. Sometimes we find ourselves in work or in a group or at home, partner, children, parents or whatever. We find, we find ourselves, as it were, having the finger pointed directly to us. And when we're having the finger pointed directly to us, we wrestle with it, we squirm, we don't want this to be said to us. And those times are a tremendous opportunity for a living practice. For seeing how can we cope, how can we accommodate, how can we work with a situation where somebody is saying, I don't like you, I think you're the pits, you don't do anything that you're supposed to do. You're lazy, indifferent, stupid, arrogant, conceited. I never want to see you again. Now, how do you respond when you hear such affirmations? <laughs> and and that, that occurs, that kind of input occurs. And none of us can avoid that kind of communication to us. And it's not easy to say, well, thank you for the clarity <laughs> of your perceptions. <laughs> so in the situ situation, what, what ways and means, what resources do we have? Do we just become you know, stone-like and passively 
accept this? Do we question? How do we work with this? And one of the things with being faced with the pointing finger is there's no easy formula. There's no right thing to do when that is occurring. But possibly we can find ways and means to incorporate this, to address this, to explore this, to listen to other <coughs> men and women who know those experiences and how they respond to them. And we, and we bring in our resources and we ask ourselves especially, are there more ways and means available than the typical one that I explore, that I use, that I find myself using unwillingly? And sometimes it comes <coughs> rather, <coughs> pardon me, rather indirectly as well. Indirectly, and to give you an example, just um, <coughs> a few uh, weeks ago, I went back to uh, Thailand, I mentioned this a few days ago in the retreat, and it was the first visit there for 12 years, it's the place which... Uh, I had uh, spent some uh, years as a monk and I went to what is called the Dharma Hall, the Dharma Hall, the Dharma Sala. It's the hall where the monks and the nuns and the lay people come and in this particular place come each evening to hear the Dharma, hear the teaching. And, and one of the things which I Recall, you know, you, uh, you probably had the experience too, where you go back to a situation, you haven't been there for some years, and then you get f kind of flashes of this which occurred, and that which occurred. And, and with this time gap of uh, 12 years, uh, plenty of them which were occurring. And one of them which occurred was, it used to happen time to time there, because I was um, typically English too lazy to learn another language, and therefore relied on the interpreter. Each evening that the Ajahn, that means teacher Ajahn uh, Dhammadaro, Dhammadaro is power of the Dharma, power of the teaching, he um, would give the, the talk, and at least here when you're listening, at least you have a fair sense of well, the guys, you know, probably pack it in after 45 minutes, and then we can all go and see the sunset and do better things. <laughs> but in, in, in the East, they, you know, we're trying to discover what it means to be timeless. There, they have no sense of time, it's, it's different. And when they, one doesn't have the comforts, you know, of these, um, um, what they call zabutans and zafus, it, it's basically um, wooden floor and um, bamboo mat on top. And if you're uh, what we call a golden oldie monk, then you, uh, senior monks, they sit in the front row and they have a little square um, piece of flat carpet to sit on. And then the, the evening talk is given and you never know when it's going to finish. You just never know. You know, everybody's sitting there yawning and scratching and he's going on and on and on. Mm about impermanence and he's completely forgotten about it. So, <laughs> so from time to time in this 
evening scenario which would, would go on, I would be uh, sitting there, and you can't stretch your leg feet straight out in front of you because it, to have the, the teacher to see the soles of the feet is regarded as being uh, rude, and so you, you're trapped in this situation. <laughs> and so one's in agitation and impatience and frustration and annoyance would build up. But the flashback I got was the times when it would occur when he would mention my name in the middle of it. For someone being the only Westerner in this uh, place, and you'd go, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Kitty Supo, which was my Pali name. Then you say, Kitty Supo. I thought, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, then, then other, and I'd just pick up an odd word I'd know. He'd say, like, he'd come out with a word like raga, which means sensual lust. I think, God, what's <laughs> that? And I'd be sitting there, and this would go on. All these sensations and feelings. And I just want to kind of, like the ants, crawl in between the woodwork and get out of this situation. So sometimes in these situations, there's no idea. But one's just heard one's name or an intimation of it. And then it's, what are they thinking about me? What are they thinking about me? And everybody's laughing and having a good time. <laughs> and then the, and the, the old monks are turning around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dreadful. <laughs> so all, the, all of these various situations that were give a kind of uh, opportunity to see the world, the world of just language. The world of words, the world of concepts generating out into this phenomenal space and in that with all the inflections and interpretations and feelings and all that goes with it, what we do with it? What do we, what do we make of it? And it's not to say well, we're not going to make anything of it or whatever, but how in the overall participation in the world of language, how does that get digested with ourselves? Can, can, we be, can we explore that sense of being spacious enough that, that somehow there's some integral understanding that what's being said is just what's being said? Just what's being said. And, and, and that's if we can find ways to respond freely and directly to that. Tremendous challenge for any of us. Not an easy undertaking by any stretch of imagination. And one of the things which I <coughs> notice in myself and I notice with uh, others that quite often the initial communication which takes place, just a couple of, a couple of points now, initial communication which takes place that we frequently we speak and refer in a more generalized way. And it's a, you, appropriate, almost we might say natural, we just speak in the generality. We might speak in the generality of our situation. But the generality, it's like I feel sometimes it's like a key into 
more information, more, more specific, more unfolding. And with the unfolding, with the sharing, and with the specific, it seems as though it brings that, shall we say, little bit more out of ourselves. And it's not, again, it's not an easy thing to do to get into that rhythm and flow of general, specific, sharing, the openness which goes with it. But one of the things which, as people are doing today and, and wonderfully in their small group meetings and this morning, that one of the things which that does, it, in a way, indirectly, it tells others, you can do it too. And we give, I think there's something almost tangible in the air, where we establish together a trust and a confidence. And we find that, though we may find it much easier to speak with one, on the one-to-one, -one, or just two or three, or just close ones, that when we sense this trust and confidence is occurring, it brings this capacity out to say, and perhaps the difference between one and fifty isn't so big, as we imagine. And the other aspect too, finally in many aspects of this, is that for change, if one is in a communication with another human being or human beings, one of the things which I notice helpful for myself and situation is that how to describe it. My, if I'm attentive, my ears are listening for the motivation as well. In other words, for change to take place, that change, not always, but generally seems to require a motivation that the person one is communicating with does have an interest, to varying degrees, in making change in ex the exploration of another way, sometimes fundamentally, quite radically different, of looking at a situation. And so sometimes, if you or I were in a conversation with somebody, and part of our interest and motivation is to facilitate, encourage change, sometimes one of the first things we've got to get clear, and that may mean asking, do you want to change? That really has got to be sorted out, I feel, primarily. And sometimes, and I notice this in myself, and uh, you may do it sometimes, sometimes in dialogue, when we're receiving information about ourselves back, we may be experiencing resistance. We don't like the person. We don't like what they're saying. We don't trust the person. We don't even believe the person, or whatever. But... Well, sometimes there's sometimes a modicum of truth in it. No matter what a person says to us, and no matter how outrageous and totally off the wall it seems, generally somewhere in there, there's something. Despite the aggression, the anger, the, the uh, whatever's been generated. And, and part of the listening is to see if we can pick up, amidst all the so-called stuff or residues that's coming over, 
the kernel which is insightful. So just to finish there, <coughs> in uh, just uh, recapping here, in communication, in listening, being aware of the way the past, the residues of the past and past experiences can interfere with the present, creating uh, projections. How easily too, when if we're building somebody up, we adopt a certain kind of posture inside of ourselves. If we're looking down on a person, we tend to adopt another kind of posture. How easily in situations in life we um, interpret situations, and perhaps we can use situations to as an opportunity for real learning to, as it were, open out the options. And similarly with the listening and when the feedback is coming to us, how can we explore that? How can we work with the feedback that comes? And bearing in mind, finally, as I said, that sometimes some of us, we we undermine ourselves and get on our own case or we remain quiet or we withdraw and in a way it easily perpetuates what our heart may feel protesting, that we are protesting about. And thus the language and the world of communication, it, it does challenge us, it does demand a lot of us and it does require us to find fresh ways, as many of us are doing in different ways, to literally speak out our concerns. And trusting that in the speaking out, seeds will be sown which will bear fruit. And sometimes even when a person is all resistant and doesn't want to hear, but one is communicating lovingly, and affectionately and clearly, sometimes, no matter how big the defense system is, sometimes the seed gets sown and that person, because it was generated with a clarity, incisiveness and affection, that somewhere along the line that person said, remembers, oh, that was important, I really needed to hear that. And that's what love in communication does. It's a, in clear, incisive and in critical communication which is necessary, love contributes to the dissolution of the walls and allows this trust to unfold. And in that, the potential for liberation is immediately present. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with each other. May all beings be free to listen and free to speak. So let's have a couple of minutes quiet period, shall we?